Welcome to the History of Korea. I'm your host, Alan Lee. In this episode, we talk about the Neolithic period in Korea. That intro music is yet another classic from Luna Lee as she performs Metallica's Enter Sandman on her Gaiagum. I put a link to her YouTube page on the show notes and on my website, thehistoryofkorea.com. In the last episode, we explored the origins of man as far back as 2 million years ago, but now we talk about early modern man after the last age ended around 12,000 years ago. And we call this basically the Neolithic period. And the the eras of this period for Korea are really defined by the pottery that we found, and that's really just a that's really just a, a matter of convenience because there, there's no other uh, artifacts or relics that have survived that long, um, as far as man is concerned. As you can as you can imagine, anything made out of wood is long rotted away after you know tens of thousands of years. And so what we have left are things that were made from stone, for example, stone tools, and then pottery. And pottery is a really good clue as to the sophistication of uh, the people that made it, obviously, because it's man-made and it requires uh, some craftsmanship. So the pottery, found in, the pottery we find in Korea that um, dates back as far back as 10,000 BCE. And uh, one of the famous archaeological sites in Korea is called Gosan-ni or Gosan-ri. We call this entire period Jolmun, or roughly translated, quote-unquote, comb pattern pottery. It's also called Bitsalmun Nui, which also means comb. And if you look at the, the pottery of this day, um, the reason that it's called that is because there are these little ridges on it that were you know, clearly made by some type of comb-like instrument that is rubbed across um, the wet clay as it's drying. I'll uh, give you a quote from Sarah Nelson in The Politics of Ethnicity in Prehistoric Korea. Quote, This period of warming climate roughly coincided with the early Neolithic period in Korea. Our chief source of information on Neolithic peoples in Korea comes from pottery. The earliest pottery is found on top of layers of pre-pottery sites. This, along with the continuity in the stone tools, suggests that the pottery cultures may have emerged from the pre-existing cultures rather than being the product of new peoples entering the peninsula. Unquote. The Jolmun period can be roughly broken down into four sub-periods. The incipient Jolmun, also known as Yungimun, early Jolmun, middle Jolmun, and late Jolmun. The early Jolmun period lasts around 8,000 years from around 10,000 BCE to 1500 BCE. After that, we enter the Mumun era. era. Mumun translates uh, to plain pottery. Um, I have some pictures of the pottery on my website as well, and you can kind of compare. I also put some pictures of England's pottery uh, contemporary to that period of time as well, so that you can kind of compare. So the incipient Jolmun period, also known as Yungimun, lasted from around 10,000 to 5,000 BCE. Um, it's the earliest period of Korean pottery found and the date range um, I just mentioned. Um, there have been conflicting studies from radiocarbon dating, however, but if the earlier date holds true, then, quote, Yungimun pottery from Gosan-ni would be, along with central and southern China, the Japanese archipelago and the Russian Far East, among a group of the oldest known pottery in world prehistory. Kuzmin, who is an archaeologist, 
suggests that more absolute dating is needed to gain a better perspective on this notion. Uh, unquote. But these pottery makers in 10,000 BCE, who were they? Well, if you read texts um, or histor his historical texts, mostly written from the 20th century, the thinking was that these pottery makers were mostly most likely from northern China, Manchuria, and the Amur River Basin. And I specify that these were written in the 20th century because they more or less predate um, a DNA evidence that we've been uncovering. And as I mentioned in, in the last podcast, DNA evidence is really throwing a lot of our preconceived notions about early man, not just in Korea, but into the rest of the world, um, uh, for a loop. And so we have to kind of condition this by saying that a lot of this research was done um, uh, without the help of DNA, um, and mostly studying pottery. So anyway, they base this on the archaeological evidence of the pottery and language. Pottery from 10,000 BCE shares characteristics with those found in the Amur River Basin. Um, and if you look on a map, it's, it's actually uh, in present-day Russia, almost directly north of Korea, and with pottery found in Japan. Um, those places uh, specifically are Tsushima, Japan, and Novopetrovka in the Siberian Amur River. And to get even more specific, that the region of the Amur River that we're talking about is actually, it's about 360 miles due north of Harbin. Harbin is, you know, uh, a, a fairly large city in northern, north, uh, eastern China, just across, and the Novopetrovka is basically just across the border in Siberia. The people who lived back then are categorized as quote-unquote broad-spectrum hunting and gathering people, quote-unquote. Uh, and here's another researcher's perspective on where the Jurmun period came from. Quote, Eun Sung Song in 2010 suggests that Korea's comb-pattern pottery culture began through the diffusion of the complex hunter-gatherer culture of the Lao River region and the fishing-focused hunter-gatherer culture of the Russian Primorye. She argues that these cultures spread, respectively, into all regions of the Korean peninsula through the Lao Daedong River route and a route down the east coast of Korea. It has also been argued that sedentism predates agriculture in East Asia. Unquote. So that was the incipient Jumun period. The early Jumun period covers around 6,000 to 3,500 BCE. Um, also, and it's also called the Classic Jumun. Uh, here's another quote from Wikipedia. Quote, the early Jumun period is characterized by deep sea fishing, hunting, and small semi-permanent settlements with pit houses. Exa examples of early Jumun settlements include Sapohang, Amsadong, and Osan-ri. Radiocarbon evidence from coastal shell-midden sites such as Ulsan, Sejukni, Dongsamdong, and Gado uh, the island, indicates that shellfish were exploited, but many archaeologists archaeologists maintain that shell middens or shell mound sites did not appear until the latter early Jumun. And, uh, unquote. And a pit house is basically a shelter that's dug into the ground. Um, here's another quote from Wikipedia. Um, classic Jumun, uh, in which comb pattern in which comb patterning, cord wrapping, and other decorations extend across the entire outer surface of the vessel, appeared at the end of the early Jumun and is found in west, central, and south coastal Korea in the middle Jumun, unquote. And it's interesting to note that a lot of these, some of these really important archaeological sites are located close to Seoul, 
And it's hard not to speculate that, well, that's just a matter of convenience as well. Um, obviously, it's going to be a lot easier for scientists from Seoul National, for example, to travel, whatever it is, 30 miles, 100 miles out to find these digs. So I think, you know, Korea being kind of the resource rich country that it is now, you're going to start to see a lot more um, archaeological sites all over the country, hopefully sometime in the future, North Korea as well. And we're going to get a, I think, a more nuanced and maybe even a completely different picture of this era. So who knows? Next is the Middle Jumun period, 3500 to 2000 BCE. Based on 14 Middle Jumun excavation sites, archaeologists, archaeologists have found evidence of cultivation via the form of carbonized plant remains and agricultural stone tools. The earliest evidence of grains is a foxtail millet seed from the Dongsamdong excavation site. And, and by the way, foxtail millet if you are Korean, you've probably eaten it. I, I, I certainly have. I didn't even know that's what it was called, but my mom, uh, you know, would serve it to us. And um, in its in its kind of natural form, it, it almost looks like a um, a weed or something. Like it kind of grows up uh, almost like weed-like from the ground, but it has these, you know, tiny little bulbs and it looks like a bunch of little grains embedded in them. And if you if you eat the plant, it, it it's actually kind of grassy, um, much more vegetal than it would than you would expect a green to taste like, but it still exists in the Korean uh, Korean cuisine. In Jimtamni in North Korea, scientists found a pit house with several hundred grams of what they believe is millet. Some archaeologists, however, cannot confirm that it is domesticated millet. To give you some historical context, it's around this time during the Middle Jumun period that the world's earliest civilization started, including the Sumerians around 3500 and Mesopotamia around 3000 BCE. It's also during this period in 2333 BCE that Korea's orig origin myth, also called uh, Dangun, is set, and we'll discuss that later. Now we get to the late Jumun period, which is around 2000 to 1500 BCE. By around 2000 BCE, we've entered the late Jumun period, and we are finally starting to recognize these as humans, at least on the Korean peninsula. Um, we're starting to recognize these humans as modern societies. By this time, those early Koreans have moved away from a hunting and gathering diet, primarily, primarily reliant on shellfish, to a quote-unquote subsistence pattern relying more on plants. This could be because the shellfish populations were stressed, or because these inhabitants moved more inland. To give you historical context, this period is contemporary with, in terms of history, the Xia dynasty, founded, uh, they say, in 2070 BCE, and in terms of archaeology, the lower Xia Jia Dian culture, around 2200 to 1600 BCE in China. Of course, the Xia dynasty is not completely accepted by the broader historian community, particularly Westerners. However, the Xia Jia uh, Dian culture is. And I'm going to take a bit of a tangent now to discuss something that's very extremely, I would say, unique to Korea or particular to uh, Korea, and that has to do with dolmens. Um, what's interesting is there's not a ton of documentation on, on the worldwide phenomena of dolmens. But what you gradually start to realize is that Korea just has incredible percentage of dolmens uh, found um, uh, on their land. So uh, a dolmen is basically, well, sh 
you know, succinctly put, a dolmen is basically Stonehenge, or Stonehenge is a collection of dolmens. Um, that's probably the easiest way to describe it. But let me give you the kind of the technical definition. A dolmen is, quote, a, ty- a type of single-chamber megalith- single megalithic tome, usually consisting of two or more vertical megaliths supporting a large, flat, horizontal capstone or table, quote, uh, unquote. So a megalith is a large stone. So this definition is just a precise way of describing two really big rocks holding up another big rock like a like a crude table. Again, the most famous example is Stonehenge. Stonehenge is a, is a, is, a, is a collection of dolmens arranged in a in a circular pattern in Wilshire, England. I'm going to leave the uh, Spinal Tap jokes aside, but if you want to see a clip of Spinal Tap where they uh, dance in front of a, a mini dolmen or Stonehenge, uh, go to my website. So with around 35,000 dolmens, or in Korean, ko-in-dol, dol means uh, rock or stone, Korea is estimated to have 40% of the world's dolmens. That's insane because there are dolmens all over the world. And yet, of the ones that are found or tracked, uh, Korea has 40%. It's speculated that the first dolmens in Korea showed up around 3000 BCE. Some of them depicting, uh, depicting quote, the prehistoric cemeteries at Gochang, Hwasan, and Gangwa contain many hundreds of examples of dolmens, tombs from the first millennium BC constructed of large stone slabs. They form part of the megalithic culture found in many parts of the world, but nowhere in such a concentrated form, unquote. And that's from the World uh, UNESCO uh, Organization website. There's some really cool pictures of some really interesting dolmens on on my website that I've collected from the web. And uh, there's all different types of shapes and sizes and styles. But if you take a look at some of these Korean dolmens, you're really going to recognize the look and feel probably from Korean paintings. Uh, it seems to be a very popular subject matter. There's also a interesting uh, cartoon, animation, like, kind of like cartoon that I took from one of the Korean sites. It's in Korean, but it kind of shows in cartoonish form uh, recreation of how these dolmens could have been erected by prehistoric man. As you can imagine, um, some of these rocks are like huge. I mean, some of them are like 40, 50, uh, you know, 20, 30 feet. So as you can imagine, it, pro- it was a community effort. It took a lot of coordination. It, it took a level of sophistication of kind of uh, social hierarchy, I'm sure. And this cartoon kind of shows all these, you know, little prehistoric men in loincloths hoisting a large dolmen upright um, using ropes. And there's some other people using a huge wooden stick as a cantilever to kind of uh, prop and uh, wedge the rock into the, into the ground. So you can take a look at that. I think what's interesting, even more interesting, is actually the the relationship to astronomy that um, a lot of the Korean dolmens have. So I put a chart in on the website that has a list of all the um, significant dolmens that have been found in Korea, um, and they're you know very carefully organized here and there's dates some of them date back as far back as 3000 BCE BCE and um carved on these rocks are constellations and pretty much every major constellation that you could think of are represented on these things so early korean man was gazing up at the sky during the nighttime and 
looking at the heavenly bodies above them, um, who knows what they thought uh, those things were. We do know that eventually um, Koreans, like you know, most other societies, um, speculated that they re- represented gods, etc. So I'll give you a quick example from the chart that I put on. So there's a dolmen in Jizok. Um, it has uh, 58 cup marks, which I think refers to the number of carvings in the dolmen. And the dolmen has carvings of Ursa Major, Ursa Minor, Draco, Cassiopeia, Cepheus. You also see Corona Borealis, Gemini, Taurus, Virgo, Leo. Pretty much every astrological symbol is, is represented. Um, and early man has carved these constellations into the rock. So really exciting area of study, I think. We we can only speculate on what the purpose of those, those things were. Okay, so this takes us to the Mumun period. We've passed the Jumun period. The Mumun period uh, is around 1500 to 300 um, BCE. Uh, the Jumun age lasted over 8,000 years and saw the evolution of Koreans from hunter-gatherers gathering shellfish from the shore to inland inhabitants of settlements with rudimentary agriculture. We again distinguish the next period by the type of pottery associated with it, and in this case we call it the mumun, um, otherwise known as undecorated or plain in Korean. This coincides with what Westerners have broadly categorized as the Bronze Age, although that categorization with its genesis in early Indo-European civilizations, presents some problems when applied to Korea, and probably everywhere else, not the least of which is that bronze didn't show up in Korea until the 8th century BCE. So bronze may have hit Korea and other parts of the world much later than in Europe, but the the markers of civilization that usually come along with Bronze Age um, did show up in Korea and parts of other parts of the world. Um, so... This is just another case where, you know, we're taking a very Eurocentric um, category category of history and applying it to a part of the world that where it really doesn't apply. But as a matter of convenience and uh, to make things easy, that's that's kind of what the movement period has been designated as kind of the quote unquote Bronze Age of Korea. This is also when intensive agriculture shows up in Korea. It seems like the Mumun period uh, people started in the Lao River Basin and North Korea. They were slash-and-burn cultivators who must have displaced the Jumun period people with their subsistence patterns. The Mumun period is uh, also subcategorized into three categories, the early, middle, and late. The early Mumun period is around 1500 to 850 BCE. It's characterized by shifting, cultivation, fishing, hunting, and settlements with rectangular, semi-subterranean pit houses. The first first part of the period saw egalitarian-type societies, but by the end saw increasing competition between settlements and perhaps the presence of quote-unquote big-man leadership. Most of these early settlements were concentrated along the Gum River in west-central Korea. Later, there would be a lot of longhouses in places such as Baeksongdong, which is in modern Cheonan city in Chungcheongnam-do, the province which is just south of the province in which Seoul resides. Again, um, it's, uh, is it just coincidence that a lot of these dig sites are very close to Seoul? Probably not. This was also the period in which there is construction of megalithic burials or the dolmens that we just talked about. This accompanied ceremonial and mortuary systems that seem to have started in this period. 
Early Mumun is contemporary to the Shang Dynasty and the Early Gong Society in China around 1500 BCE. And then later the Zhou, I think I'm pronouncing that right, Z-H-O-U, or Zhao Dynasty in 1045 BCE. Shang Dynasty is where we found so many oracle bones and the earliest Chinese script. So by this time, China was quite advanced. Um, there was also This was also the time of ancient Greece, which started roughly around this time. So around the early Mumun period, um, Korean, Koreans were organizing into larger groups. They had a kind of hierarchical structure, and you can kind of see similar patterns emerging in England during that time as well. But the greater civilizations, such as Greece and China, had already, you know, they had writing, they had, you know, they had all types of things. And that's obviously a, a, a um, one factor being that they had much higher population density and um, a lot more people, etc. But you kind of see the progression of um, a really large, advanced uh, civilization like China and Greece versus uh, something like Korea and England. In England, around 1300 BCE, burial, burial sites showed family graves cremated and laid in decorated urns. Men and women sported ornaments of gold and bronze. The Middle Mumun period was 850 to 550 BCE and is characterized by intensive agriculture as evidenced by, quote, more than 32,000 square meters of dry fields, which were recovered at Daepyeong Yujok, uh, which is a famous archaeological site in southern Korea, uh, unquote. Most of this was dug up in around 1996 to 2005, so it's a recent discovery, but it's, important, it's an important site for not just Korea, but all of East Asian prehistory. And if you, I put an aerial photo of this dig site on the website, and it's pretty interesting to see. There's a lot of huge, um, uh, basically huge holes in the ground that represent where they had put structures and field, uh, agricultural fields, etc., the classic Mumun period is also called the Songgukni uh, Yujak, or the Songgukni culture, named after another import, important historical site in Chungcheong Namdo. Quote Songgukni culture is defined by the following components houses with an oval shaped pit in the centers of their floors, yielding jars with out, outwardly curved mouths, flask shaped red burnished pottery stone daggers with attached handles that do not have a central horizontal groove, triangular stone knives, and grooved adzes, unquote. And I have another picture of some of these knives um, that were found there. And um, yeah, they're really cool looking knives. I mean, from, from, my, from my untrained eye, they actually look pretty similar to some of the Greek knives that, that have been found, the ancient Greek knives that have been found. By now, it is very clear that the social structure of these settlements indicate the presence of elite and social competition, i.e. the social structure that we more or less see today. High-status burials containing greenstone or jade ornaments, bronze daggers, jade, and red-burnished ve vessels have been found in large, deep-shaft burial grounds. This is also the start of rice farming, although evidence suggests it wasn't the primary crop yet. People grew millets, barley, wheat, legumes, and continued to hunt and fish. And to give this historical context, uh, contemporary to the classic Mumun period was the end of Western Zhao and the start of Eastern Zhao in 772 BCE in China. 
While there is still some lingering doubt, mostly from Western skeptics, about the historical accuracy of the earlier Xia and even the Shang dynasties, by now we are firmly in widely accepted historical truths. There are well-documented kingdoms in China such as the Zhou and the Chu, and they are at war during this period. In England, the inhabitants enter the Iron Age in around 700 BCE. We don't quite have a uh, historiography yet with names of tribes or individuals, but we know there are chieftains, warriors, priests, workers, and slaves. In Greece, um, it's understood that the first Olympics are held around this period as well, in in 776 BCE. The late Mumun period covers 550 to 300 BCE and is characterized by the evidence of conflict. There are ring ditches some 13 feet high and 40 feet wide, suggesting protection from enemies. There are fewer but larger settlements, suggesting mergers of settlements into larger groups. So what historians are saying is that because these dig sites show ring ditches that are really, you know, really deep, like 13 feet high, the only justification that they could think of is as protection against enemies. So we're starting to see, well, what we know as modern society where you have tribes uh, battling it out against each other and seeking safety in numbers. Settlements similar to Mumun show up in northern Kyushu in Japan during this period. In China, Confucius is born during this period in around 600 BCE. In England, a Greek merchant named Pythias, makes landfall and gives England its name of Britanniae. The late Mumun uh, period ends in 300 BCE when iron is introduced to Korea. So we've kind of come to the end of uh, the the period that we'll be covering because, you know, at this point, after this point, um, Koreans discover iron and they also get some significant contact with outsiders, specifically from northern China. And this is where things get really, well, this is where things get much more documented. So we don't have to rely so much on just pottery and holes in the ground, but we actually have writing, obviously, from the Chinese side about things that happen. But before we wrap this episode, I want to talk about uh, something that's just as important as science and truth, and that is uh, myths. For Korea, the most uh, well-documented and the most widely accepted creation myth is the, basically the story of a figure named Dangun. And the Dangun creation myth is called the Dangun Wangam. So I'm going to give you two versions of it. The first one is going to be basically something I ripped off from Wikipedia because it's, uh, you know, it's in modern language. It's easier for us to understand. But then I'm going to give you, then I'm going to read a, a, a translation of the creation myth from the uh, uh the Samguk Yusa. And that language is a bit more stilted. Obviously, it's basically the translation of a text from the you know 12th century written in classic Chinese. But I wanted to give you both to kind of give you, because I want to give you straight from the source what the story really sounds like. So um, the easy way to describe it, uh, again, this is from Wikipedia, is that according to the Dangun creation myth, Huanung um, was a mythical figure yearned to live on the earth among the valleys and the mountains. He was a son of Huan Yin, who is basically the, you know, the, the creator of, you know, the world, heaven and earth. Um, and Huan Yin permitted his son Huan Ung and 3,000 followers to depart, and they descended from heaven to a sandalwood tree on Bekdu Mountain. 
um, them called Tebek Mountain. And Bektu Mountain is um, extremely important landmark for Korea, both culturally, historically, etc. It's even in the national anthem, referred to in the national anthem for South Korea. And uh, if you look at uh, Bektu Mountain on a map today, it's um, unfortunately the border with North Korea and China slices right through it. And at some point later in my podcast, I'll definitely um, discover, because I actually don't know the full history of how that border came to be made, but I'm sure it was probably a very, very hard negotiating point for the Koreans to at least be able to keep a half of what they considered their spiritual home. And so I can only imagine how tough that negotiation must have been with whoever at the time they were negotiating with, you know, China, Russia, whoever it was, America. Anyway, Bektusan is is actually really beautiful mountain. It, it almost looks like um, it's a it's this heavenly lake that sits atop uh, this huge, looks like a dormant volcano. Um, the water is like turquoise and it's snow capped and it's 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 actually really beautiful. Hopefully, I can make it there someday. Anyway, so there, Hwanung founded Shinsi or City of God and gave gave himself the title Heaven King. In a cave near the sandalwood tree lived a bear and a tiger who came to the tree every day to pray to Huanung. One day, Huanung gave the bear and the tiger 20 bulbs of garlic and some divine mugwort, or souk. Um, mugwort is still really popular in Korea in food as well as medicine, or both. If you know Korean cuisine, you know that pretty much everything we eat doubles as medicine as well. But souk is is like this you know leafy kind of herb-looking thing, and... Um, I love the taste. Actually, you'll find it in a lot of soups. Um, it's pretty herb- herbaceous, kind of grassy taste, but it's very clean taste. And it's used in a lot of uh, rice cakes as well. Um, and of course, garlic, you know, also really important to Korea. So Hwanung promised if they ate only his garlic and mugwort and stayed in the cave out of the sunlight for t- 120 days, he would make them human. The tiger and the bear agreed and went back to the cave. But the tiger was too hungry and impatient to wait leaving the cave before the 100 days were done. But the bear remained and on the 21st day was transformed into a beautiful woman who gratefully honored Hwanung with a child. So Hwanung made her his wife and gave her a son called Dangun, a name which has two meanings, quote-unquote altar prince and sandalwood. Dangun eventually founded Gojoseon, and the rest is history. So I'm going to tell you that same story, except I'm going to read directly from a translation of the Samguk Yusa. The Dangun myth. The Wei Shu tells us that 2,000 years ago, at the time of Emperor Yao, Dangun Wanggam chose Asadal as his capital and founded the state of Joseon. The old record notes that in olden times, Huanin's son, Huanung, wished to descend from heaven and live in the world of human beings. Knowing his son's desire, Huanin surveyed the three highest mountains and found Mount Tebek, the most suitable place for his son to settle and help human beings. Therefore, he gave Huanung three heavenly seals and dispatched him to rule over the people. Huanung descended with 3,000 followers to a spot under a tree by the holy altar atop Mount Tebek, and he called this place the City of God. He was the heavenly king Huanung. Leading the Earl of Wind, the Master of Rain, and the Master of Clouds, he took charge of some 360 areas of responsibility, including agriculture, allotted lifespans, illness, punishment, and good and evil, and had brought culture to his people. At that time, a bear and a tiger lived in the same cave, prayed to Holy Huanung to transform them into human beings. 
He gave them a bundle of sacred mugworts and 20 cloves of garlic and said, If you eat these and shun the sunlight for 100 days, you will assume human form. Both animals ate the species and avoided the sun. After 21 days, the bear became a woman, but the tiger, unable to observe the taboo, remained a tiger. Unable to find a husband, the bear woman prayed under the altar for a child. Huanung metamorphosed himself, lay with her, and begot a son called Dangun Wangam. And in par- uh, parenthetical, uh, in quotes, uh, Dangun later was often considered the first Korean and or founder of, of the first Korean state. This account goes on to say that in the 50th year of the reign of Emperor Yao, on a date calculated as October 3rd, 2333 BCE, Dangun was said to have established the state of Joseon. State of Joseon. This date has become a national holiday in South Korea. Koreans today often refer to 5,000 years of history, a phrase based on this legendary date. And that's from the Sangguk Yusa, as compiled by Peter H. Lee and William Theodore DeBerry, um, published in 1997. So I'm going to go back and make a few comments on some of these things, and then we'll wrap up this episode. So Asadal, the city of God, or I'm sorry, that the first capital of the empire Dangun created, is there are three kind of, it's become a very politically charged debate as to where people want to locate Asadal. Some people say it's actually kind of near in the Laoning Peninsula, kind of near, you know, basically in present-day China. Some people want to say it's near Pyongyang. Other people pick another spot in North Korea. So that's an area of debate. Another thing I'll I'll mention about this language from Sangguk Yusa is you could totally tell that this was written during um, the Gordia era because there's a lot of references to, um, well, there's a reference to China, number one, but there's also references to like bureaucracy. So he took charge of, quote unquote, he took charge of some 360 areas of responsibility, which is very, very uh, Korean civil service bureaucracy. Um, Korea society back then, uh, you know, very precisely detailed the level of responsibilities of each citizen. And they had all types of um, offices dedicated to everything from, you know, cleaning latrines to, you know, recording uh, the history of, of the king, etc. Uh, another thing I'll, I'll mention, so the fact that they use uh, bear and tiger, um, bears and tigers figure very prominently in Korean literature. Um, Koreans seem to have a, a pretty uh, kind of a soft spot for the bear and for the tiger in a way, although tiger um, usually is very ambiguous, like has has both negative and positive connotations in, in Korean fairy tales. They they often play the bad character, but um, they're also kind of uh, respected because they're fierce and, and um, strong, etc. So with that, we're going to wrap up this episode. We've covered, you know, 8,000 something, 8,000 years. And I think uh, starting in the next episode, we're actually going to switch to uh, historiography instead of just relying on archaeological evidence, which uh, which is kind of a breath of fresh air. So until then, uh, stay safe, and I'll see you next time.